this time I want to go ahead and dismiss all of our kids ages 3 through 9. All kids ages 3 through 9. You are dismissed to go into the back with Miss Liz. And at this time I want to invite uh, one of our elders, uh, Mike Scooping, to go ahead and come up as he is going to be bringing the word for us this morning. Uh, I think I'm on. Oh, I'm on. Lucky you guys. Okay. Hmm. Before I was brought to faith, I was a teenager. Um, I was very rebellious. I've said before, I wasn't malicious, but I was very mischievous, and I loved to go around authority. I loved pushing the limits of things. That was my thing I did. The idea that I even became a believer surprised people, surprised me. That God was so merciful and gracious to me to, to bring me the faith. Now, the Bible gives a lot of ways that you, we can relate to God. God is a fortress or a stronghold. He's a rock. He could be a shepherd. He could be a brother, a friend, a father. He could be a daddy. When I first became a believer, I thought of God as my king, which is really odd, and it was one of the signs that I truly changed because a king, a guy who likes to buck the authority and rebel and to, to, to see God as a king, that struck me as, wow, I've been changed. I'm a different person. Now, in all, in all sincerity, I, I completely blow being a good follower of that king, and he's constantly merciful and gracious to me, but I see him that way. Today's text, we're continuing on in Samuel, so we're in 1 Samuel, we're going to be going over uh, chapter 11, which is largely about the actions of a king, the actions of a godly king. So for people like me who naturally see God as, or Jesus as their king, this is a celebration, this is a happy, happy ser uh, sermon, because this is how we see Jesus. Right? For those of you who may not see naturally Jesus as a king, and that's, you know, that's fine. Um, hopefully this will be an encouragement for you to maybe consider him differently that way and, and see him as your king. So, so far in Samuel, by the way, Samuel picks up right after the book of Judges, so about a thousand years B.C. So, these things are happening a long time ago. Um, so far in Samuel, Samuel has, uh, Samuel has been established as a prophet. Um, he could also be considered um, as the last of the judges to come along. Um, Israel uh, is feeling unsafe and vulnerable because of foreign forces that are in. We're going to touch on that a little bit, uh, actually a lot. Um, and because they're feeling unsafe, they're, they've asked for a king. After some stuff, uh, Samuel maybe reluctantly anoints Saul as king. Um, but the end of chapter 10, Saul, uh, Samuel's been anointed as king, 
but there's rumblings, there's people that are not happy with the idea that Samuel is their king. So, chapter 11. We don't know how much time has passed between 10 and 11. It seems like some time has passed, uh, but we don't know how much. Um, and there's a continued discord in Israel. Not everyone, like, like I said, not everyone is happy with Saul as king. Saul is not acting as king. Saul has actually gone back to his hometown uh, of Gibeah, and he's actually back working the fields. So, not really the king they were expecting to have. Right? Um, and there's real fear in, in, in Israel that they're vulnerable and they're defenseless. Good reason for that. There's a new, there's a new villain uh, in the, coming to the story. Uh, Nahesh the Ammonite, um, very scary guy. Uh, uh, Nahesh means snake or serpent, so it doesn't take too much brain power to figure out what he is, right? He's not a good character. Um, He's well known. There's extra biblical texts that tell us about him, um, that he carries out the threats he said. We're going to get into that. It's pretty scary. Um, and he may have been one of the reasons that Israel was so scared and wanting a king. So, uh, a good villain here. Um, by good, I mean bad. Uh, um, and then we have a little town called Jabesh Gilead. Um, and they're, they're, um, they're like on the, the northern side of Israel. And they're of the lowest people in, 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 in standing in Israel. In fact, most of Israel doesn't like the people uh, Jabesh, uh, of Jabesh Gilead. Um, they have no reason to think anyone's ever going to come help them. And they're desperate for a savior. And they know no one really is ever going to come help them. So, let's read chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite, the snake, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, that's that little village. All the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only under the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers went to Gibeah of Saul and reported these, these terms to the people, they, were all, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. The terror of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came together as one. When Saul mustered the men of Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. A lot of people. A lot of men. They told the messengers who had come, 
Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. Yeah, they were. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two men were left together. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us that we may put them to death. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel and the people, sorry, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed, I'm sorry, there they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and the Israelites had a great celebration. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Lord, thank you for the people that are here. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you that, that, that you love this church. Lord, now please help me bring the, the proper word that you want me to bring, Lord. Lord, please move our hearts to be closer to you. May we see you the way you want us to see us, Lord. Lord, change our hearts towards you. Amen. Okay. So what does all this mean? What a story, huh? Bo gave me um, a, a couple, uh, he gave me um, this or the next verse to do, the next chapter to do. Um, now this one was a lot shorter, so that helped. But okay, I get to the bit where they're gonna gouge the guy's out, eyes out, I'm in. All right, so there's something wrong with me. All right. Last, a few couple sermons ago they were, being eaten by birds. Now they're getting their eyes. All right. Cool, cool. All right. Let's go through this. Um, verse 1. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Gabash Gilead, and all the men of Jabash said to him, make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. Okay. There's text in the... In the um, actually the Dead Sea Scrolls um, that talk about Nahash. Um, and he was known for gouging out the right eyes of, the, of his enemies. Prior to this, according to, to, to this, uh, this text, um, about 7,000 men from the tribes of Gad and Reuben escaped uh, Nahash and fled to Jabesh. So, Jabesh knows about Nahesh, that's hard to say, and they know to take their threats seriously. We deal with scary things all day long, and I don't mean to take away from the scary things that we deal with, but this is terrifying. They know they're in trouble, and they know that no one's coming for them. Can you imagine? They're just stalling. So they go, and they, in almost desperation, you get the sense, they say, hey, give us, 
Make a treaty with us. And so Nehesh says, I'll make a treaty. I'm going to gouge your eyes out. And he's done that before. The elders in three say, give us seven days to send messengers throughout Israel. That no one, if no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. There's some history there. It had been about roughly 100 years before this. It's called the, the Benjamite War. Um, what had happened was a Levite was traveling through the Benjamin tribe area with his concubine. Just think of it as his wife. A bunch of Benjamites attacked him and her, um, and they raped her to death. Horrible. All of Israel rises up against ben, the Benjamites and wipe them out. They stop right before completely wiping out, and they realize, well, we can't wipe out a whole tribe. That would be bad. Okay, we beat them up bad enough. There was about, I think, 600 people left, 600 men left. It's like, okay, well, what do we do about that? Well, we'll give them women. But they'd all, all of Israel, when they rose up against the Benjamites, vowed never to, 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 to have anything to do with them. So they can't give them their women. Well, there was one town, one little village that didn't rise up uh, to attack the Benjamites, and it was Jabesh. So they say, okay, well, we can't give them our women. We don't like Jabesh. We'll go get Jabesh's women. So they went to Jabesh, and they stole all of the 400 virgins from Jabesh and gave them to the Benjamites. They were still short 400, and it gets, it gets ugly. But I'm sorry, they're still, my, my math. They were short 200, so they, they gave them the Benjamites another way to get the 200. It's not pleasant. Humans are awful. So Jabesh knows they're, they're hated by Israel. Israel's not going to come save them, but they give themselves seven days. They send out the... They, they, they send out the, um, the, the messengers. In four, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to, to the people, they all wept aloud. They weren't, they weren't weeping because they were afraid of what was going to happen to Jabesh. They were afraid of what's going to happen to them. They're, they're not that far apart. So this is what they were afraid of all the time. This is why they wanted a king. Just then they saw Saul returning from the fields beyond his oxen. He says, what, you know, what's wrong with everyone? Why are you they weeping? And they repeated to him. Pretty well shows that Saul is not the king that they were expecting to have. He's out working with his oxen in the field. Something strange happens to Saul. A little side note about Saul. Up until now, Saul is pretty reluctant. We saw that in, in, the, in the last chat, uh, last sermon and such, that he's reluctant to become the leader. Something happens to him. When Saul hears, heard the, their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. Why was he burning with anger? God cares about the vulnerable. God cares about his people that are lost. The Spirit of God comes on Saul, and he's burning with anger. 
This also seems to be in reference to, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I skipped something. Um, he does something really odd. He, t- he says he took a pair of oxen. Now, he was coming with two oxen, so he may have cut up his own oxen. That's weird. He cuts them to pieces and he sends by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Okay, why would anyone do that? Well, that's weird. But this also goes back to the Benjamite War um, when the Levite's concubine was killed. He took her and cut her up and sent her out, sent them out to all the tribes of Israel and says, anyone who doesn't come, uh, this will, will happen to them. Um, so it's, it doesn't say that that's why he did it, but it seems to make sense that's why he did it. It sort of fits. Um, I don't mean to compare a concubine to an oxen. That's what he did. The ironic thing, and there's something to play with your brain if you ever you get bored and you want to think about it, it was the Benjamites that were in trouble for what they did to the concubine. Saul is a Benjamite. So it's all come back in, in the circle, right? So they have a leader from people they used to hate. Ooh, we have a leader from God who we used to hate. There's so much here. Anyhow. Okay, so they send out the oxen. They know what it, the people that got it probably figured out that that's what happened with the Benjamite war, so it, it, it's similar. So we assume that. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came together as one. When Saul mustered the people at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah uh, 30,000. Israel feared Nahash because he's evil and terrible. They feared God more. That's a good sign. You should fear God more than him other things. Um, and this is finally the king uh, that they wanted. Uh, from what we know, this is the biggest army that Israel ha- has raised up, um, except for the Benjamite war. They actually gathered more people to attack, attack the Benjamites than this, but still impressive. 330,000. They told the messengers uh, who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went out and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. Can you imagine? They were hopeless. They had no chance of these, your fellow Israelites ever coming to save them. And they get back, they're going to be saved. You remember in your sin, you realize you needed a savior? And you realize you don't deserve one? That should be every day, by the way. And you realize you have a Savior? Wow. Elation. We have, the, we have the opportunity to be elated every day to remember that. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow you will... Uh, uh, they said to the Ammonites, they, they, the people of Jabesh, said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you'd like. We'll come back to that in a second. Because it's a trap. They, they, they're setting a trap for the Ammonites. Which, well, I won't come, I'll do it right now. I'll come back to it. You need context. You need to, and I mean, it's silly. I may not do it. Okay. 
Okay, um, so tomorrow we will surrender to you. You can do to us whatever you'd like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Okay, so the question before that, so the people of Jabesh know it's a trap. How do you go tell the Ammonites that, hey, we're going to surrender to you without snickering? Or, or there had to be like, like guys in the back just like laughing. I said it was silly. So Saul takes three divisions and he attacks them at night. We see this a lot in the Bible. We see this a lot in the Old Testament with, with battles. Men plan something, they're going to do something. And God comes along and just, just easily wipes them away. What we think is a big struggle, to God is not a struggle. While they're sleeping, they're attacked and wiped away. By the heat of the day, it's kind of nice. They only had to do it while it was cool. You don't, you don't want to slaughter someone when it's hot out. Thank you. I've never slaughtered anyone, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you wouldn't want to. Okay. So the people of Jabesh, their salvation was utterly complete. And they did nothing to get it. They didn't deserve it, and they did nothing. God provided them salvation. The people then said to Saul, I'm sorry, the people then said to Samuel, who is it to ask, this is the hardest thing, I cannot say this, I've practiced so many times, shall, shall Saul, that's hard, reign over us, turn these people over to us and we will put them to death. Now remember in the last chapter, people questioned um, Saul being made king and they didn't like it. So now they're coming back and saying, hey, who were those people who didn't like you? Tell us who they are and we'll go kill them. Saul, who still, this is godly King Saul. This isn't regular Saul. This is still godly King Saul. Um, says, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Saul is merciful and gracious to those who oppose them. On the cross, there's two thieves on either side of them. Earlier, while they're earlier on the cross, they were both mocking Christ. By the end, we always hear the one who 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 said, you know, uh, who uh, said, you know, remember me in your kingdom? And he said, you know, you'll be, tonight you'll be with me in in paradise. Earlier, he was mocking Christ. What what what? What Saul does here is very Christ-like, to forgive those who mocked him. Then Samuel said, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So this is what happened in the previous chapter. They, they were in Gilgal, and they went through a ceremony that just didn't seem to take, right, uh, for whatever reason. So... 
Um, let's go and re renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed a fellowship offering to the, to the Lord. And, and Saul and Israelites had a great celebration. So the godly king Saul led his people to complete victory. Um, the fears of Jabesh and all of Israel were, were not realized. They weren't hopeless. Saul's kingship was renewed. They have a big party. It's a big happy ending. Nice. Unfortunately, the Spirit of God would not remain on Saul. And Saul will eventually fail. And he will be rejected by God as king. But the gift of this chapter is not to promote a man but just to point us to our true king, our eternal king, our glorious king, Jesus. One of the great things about studying the Old Testament, and we don't study the New Testament often enough, and thank you for Bo for bringing us through yet another book in the Old Testament. One of the great things about the Old Testament is that it shows us who God is, and it shows us who we are. <laughs> and it shows that we are in a desperate need of a Savior. Because we can't do it on our own. We are sinful. We are not like Him. We are not holy. We need a Savior. The gift of, the, uh, of a chapter like this is that it gives us a picture of what that Savior is truly like. So if you haven't gotten it yet, Nahash represents sin, okay? Uh, you're not Saul in this. That's Jesus. You have a choice. You can be uh, Jabesh if you feel like that's, you're connecting with Jabesh. Okay, you can be Jabesh, um, the little village there, the outcasts. Um, you could also... You, you could also be the rest of Israel um, because they didn't have their act together either. So you, you have a choice there in all this. But don't miss that what, what, what Saul is doing is a picture of Christ. The people of Javesh were vulnerable and defenseless. They were rejected and hopeless. You ever feel that way? You feel like you long for a savior. Even if you're a believer, we live in a crazy world that beats us down. Even if you're a good, solid believer, there's days, there's times when you say, I need a savior. You know you can't save yourself. You know you shouldn't look to others to save you. And that includes organizations or clubs or activities or whatever. Don't look to other things to save yourself. Your only hope is salvation through Jesus. When we look, when we look at the godly king soul, we see Jesus. He cares about the vulnerable. He gathers his people. He saves his people. He's merciful for those who opposed him. 
we see that that the salvation brought forgiveness and mercy and grace and reconciliation and restoration and renewal. We saw that it brought peace and celebration and joy. That's what the salvation of Christ brings us. Okay. That all sounds nice. Yay, Jesus. There's plenty, there's a lot of ways to talk, looking at Jesus, like I said earlier. He could be your fortress that you can run to and he's safe, you're safe there. He could be your rock that you're standing on solid ground. He could be your, your shepherd, he could be your physician. The thing with being a king, it relies on us submitting to him. And that's where this gets a little bit ugly. We don't like submitting. Our spiritual side of us wants that deeply. Wants to run to Christ and wants him to rule our lives. But we also have a sinful nature still that hates that. Wants it our own way. Wants to find our own way of doing things. One of the frustrating things about being a parent is that when you get your kids to a certain age, when they're young, they listen to you. They like you. When they're teenagers, they don't listen to you, and they, they, they don't seem to like you too much sometimes. And they, I call it the stupid years, right? Because they think, they think you're stupid, right, as a parent. What they don't know is that you think they're stupid too. So... One of the crazy things about humans, and you see this with adolescents really, really clearly, is that they're here and they want to get here. Let's say it's a career or job or whatever. And as a, someone who's been down that road before, you could tell them pretty easily, take this step, this step, this step, and you have a really good shot at making it, right? And, it, and you could talk to experts and they'd all say, yep, those are the steps to take to do it. And it makes sense to you. Some of us had like PowerPoint slides that you could show your kids. <laughs> Completely ignore them. And they say, no, I'd rather do it on my, my, my own way. And you'd say, but you're not going to make it that way. There's so many people who say, follow your heart, trust your gut. Some of the worst advice ever. Right? And you look, it's easy for us to look at an adolescent or a teenager or whatever, a young person, and say, what's wrong with those people? And that was me. I look at myself now and I say, have I changed? I'm getting ready for retirement. I'm starting to plan. I know how I want to do my retirement. <laughs> Don't tell me how to do my retirement. I'm the same idiot that I was when I was 18. I'm, I'm the same person in so many ways. That's what physical stuff you think I'm any better spiritually? No. I still need to remind myself I need to submit to my king. I don't like it. Giving yourself to over to another authority is scary. That's reasonable. We know that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
And kings in the history have never been presented very well. They're prideful, they're greedy, they're ruthless, they're uncaring. Saul is going to turn out to be a terrible king. Israel's going to have a long line of terrible kings. We're Americans. Sorry for the British people here. But you really haven't had a king yet, right? You're getting one, right? How's that going to turn out for you? Okay. He sounds like a good bloke, so you'll be fine. But we're Americans. We, we, rent, we, we get precedence. We might be better off with a king. So, all right. Um, so that's our natural tendency, to shy away from uh, submitting to authority. And that sounds good. Jesus is our king, but is he really your king? Really? He's not mine. I, I like that idea. I fail at that. So why would Jesus be any different? Okay, let's look at his character. He was not born to royalty. He was born to poor parents. How do we know he was poor parents? When they went to the temple on, uh, to, to present Jesus, they had doves. He was poor. They were poor. He was born in a stable. His crib was a feeding trough. We call that a manger. Feeding trough. His birth was announced to the lowest people in that culture, shepherds. We romanticize shepherds, but they were like, I hope there's no garbage men here. I love garbage men. I need garbage men, right? But in our society, shepherds were like at the level of garbage men at that point, right? Can you imagine you just gave birth and a bunch of shepherds show up? You'd be horrified. You'd be more, we romanticize that whole, that whole scene, that whole nativity thing. But the lowest people in their culture shows up in the stable. He was raised in an obscure town and village. Nazareth? Anything good come out of Nazareth? One of his apostles said. He was never included with the, uh, among the elite class. He welcomed and he hung out with the lowest of society, sinners and tax collectors. I wouldn't hang out with a tax collector. Garbage man. He called out the cold and uncaring uh, religious leaders. He cared for and he sought out the rejected and the vulnerable. This is your king. He touched lepers and outcasts who no one else would go near. He touched. You ever wonder in the Bible that there's some weird things where he's healing people and he's touching them in weird ways? Why? That wasn't for, the, that wasn't for other people to see. It was for those people to, to be touched. Wow, what a loving, caring thing to do. We need to heal the leopard, send him to the priests to be clean, to be declared clean. That wasn't to follow, to fulfill any sort of law or anything. It's for those people who were outcasts in society could be brought back into society and they could, be, they could be with their people again. He healed people physically and emotionally and socially. 
That's your king. That's who you can give your life to. He was compassionate and caring. When he fed the 5,000 or 4,000, he could have sent those folks away. But he's the bread of life. He gives them bread to eat. That's who he is. He cares about people. That's your king. He was brave and manly. Men, if you ever want a good example of what masculinity looks like, the last person you're probably thinking of is Jesus. The first person you should think of is Jesus. No one more masculine than Jesus. Women, young girls, you're looking for a masculine person to marry? Find someone that has the masculinity of Jesus. He was brave. He was obedient. He was self-sacrificing. And he was forgiving. This is your king. Don't try to imitate people you see on TV or, or shows or whatever books that show you what a man is. Jesus is your epitome of manhood. He was perfection. Despite our nature, our natural inclination to resist authority, the more we focus on who he was, his character, the easier it is to submit to that. Feed your spiritual side with who he is and starve your sinful nature with your desire to have it your own way. That's his character. What has he promised? With that character, we can believe his promises. Regarding sin, he's promised forgiveness. Not a little forgiveness, not temporary forgiveness, complete forgiveness for eternity. And not for the little sins, for all your sins. The sins you're afraid to think about. The sins that you would never tell anyone else about. Forgiven. There's atonement and redemption. He has purchased you. You are his. You're not going to give yourself to that? Regarding the future, he's promised reconciliation with God and other believers. We're going to be reconciled. We get along nicely here because it's church, right? We're going to spend eternity together, and we're going to like each other, and we're going to get along with each other. Do you get along with that many people for that long? It's going to be amazing. All things are going to be renewed. Aren't you tired of the brokenness of this world? It's going to be renewed. He's going to wipe away every tear. That's our king. 
Under his rule, we're going to have glory, purpose, peace, security, rest, and joy. We can have that, so much of it now, if we, if we, if we hold him up as our true king. So where are you today? Are you struggling with that? Some of us are. All of us are. Do you feel forsaken and vulnerable and hopeless? Know that you have Jesus. Know that he is your king. Pray to him. Talk to him. Know the peace that passes all understanding. If you're in a good place with that right now, and we ebb and flow with things, if you're in a good place right now, celebrate, rejoice. That's not of you. You didn't get yourself in that good place. God in his mercy and his grace has put you in that good place. So celebrate that. Enjoy it. If you're a believer and you're struggling with that right now, run to him. So often in our sins, we, 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 we run from God. Don't do that. Run to him. He loves you. Repent from that. Enjoy the joy of repentance, of knowing that he, you are forgiven and you're restored and you're right with him again. Enjoy the fact that he is a fortress and a rock and a shepherd and a daddy. If you've never come to faith in Christ, if you've never come to the place where you trust on what, that what he did on the cross was adequate and sufficient to pay for your sins, oh, I pray today God will change you. What a glorious thing that would be, that you would find faith and a new heart and eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would find grace and forgiveness, and you'd find community of those who love him also. So in closing, crazy little chapter. Went pretty good from eyes getting gouged out to, we have a king. Remember, you have a savior. You can't save yourself. Don't look to others or other things to save you. Your only hope is Jesus. He loves you and he cares for you. He has rescued you from all sin. He's rescued from the sins of this fallen world, the sins of others. He saved you from your own sins. And we will get to enjoy him forever. 